Chapter 26, Part 3 of Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon by Austin Layard. Chapter 26, Part 3. Although no remains or even traces of pillars have hitherto been discovered in the Assyrian ruins, I now think it highly probable, as suggested by Mr. Ferguson, that they were used to support the roof. It is curious, however, that no stone pedestals, upon which wooden columns may have rested, have been found in the ruins, nor are there marks of them on the pavement. I can scarcely account for the entire absence of all such traces. However, unless some support of this kind were resorted to, it is impossible that even the large chambers at Koyanjik, without including the central halls, could have been covered in. The great hall, or house as it is rendered in the Bible, of the forest of Lebanon was thirty cubits high upon four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams upon the pillars. The Assyrian kings, we have seen, cut wood in the same forest as King Solomon, and probably used it for the same purposes namely for pillars, beams, and ceilings. The dimensions of this hall, a hundred cubits, about a hundred fifty feet, by fifty cubits, seventy-five feet, very much resemble those of the center halls of the palaces of Nineveh. The porch of pillars was fifty cubits in length, equal, therefore, to the breadth of the hall, of which I presume it to have been an enclosed space at the upper end, whilst the porch for the throne where he might judge, even the porch of judgment, covered with cedar wood from one side of the floor to the other, was probably a raised place beneath it corresponding with a similar platform where the host and guests of honor are seated in a modern eastern house. Supposing the three parts of the building to have been arranged as I have suggested, we should have an exact counterpart of them in the hall of the audience of the Persian palaces. The upper part of the room which I have frequently seen the governor of Isfahan was divided from the rest of the magnificent hall by columns, and his throne was a raised place of carved woodwork adorned with rich stuffs, ivory, and other precious materials. Suppliants and attendants stood outside the line of pillars, and the officers of the court within. Such also may have been the interior arrangement of the great halls in the Assyrian edifices. That the Ninevite palaces had more than one story, at least in some parts if not in all, can now no longer be doubted. The inscriptions appear to describe distinctly the upper rooms, and at Kuyanjik, as it has been seen, an inclined way was discovered leading to them. Without there had been an upper structure, it would be impossible to account for the enormous accumulation of rubbish, consisting chiefly of remains of buildings, over the ruins of Kuyanjik and Korsabad. These upper rooms were probably built of sun-dried bricks and wood, but principally of the latter material, and may have been connected with the lower by winding staircases, as in the Temple of Solomon, as well as by inclined ways. The roofs were flat, as those of all our eastern houses are to this day, and, as suggested by Mr. Ferguson, they may have been crowned by a wooden tillar, or platform, and altars upon which sacrifices were offered. The houses upon whose roofs they have burned incense unto all the hosts of heaven, and have poured out drink offerings to other gods. I have already described the internal decorations of the Assyrian palaces, and have little more to add upon the subject. The walls of Koyanjik were more elaborately decorated than those of Nimrud and Korsabad. 
almost every chamber explored, and they amount to above 70, was paneled with alabaster slabs carved with numerous figures and with the minutest details. Each room appears to have been dedicated to some particular event, and in each, apparently, was the image of the king himself. In fact, the walls recorded in sculpture what the inscriptions did in writing, the whole history of Sennacherib's reign, his great deeds in peace as well as in war. It will be remarked that whilst in other Assyrian edifices the king is frequently represented taking an active part in the war, slaying his enemies, and fighting beneath a besieged city, he is never represented at Kayanjik otherwise than in an attitude of triumph, in his chariot or on his throne, receiving the captives and the spoil. Nor is he ever seen torturing his prisoners or putting them to death with his own hand. There were chambers, however, in the palace of Sennacherib, as well as in those of Nimrud and Khorsabad, whose walls were simply coated with plaster, like the walls of Belshazzar's palace at Babylon. They may have been richly ornamented in color with figures of men and animals, as well as with elegant designs, or they may have been paneled with cedar wainscoting, as the chambers in the temple and palaces of Solomon, and in the great edifices of Babylon. Gilding, too, appears to have been extensively used in decoration, and some of the great sphinxes may have been overlaid with gold, like the cherubim in Solomon's temple. At Kuyanjik, the pavement slabs were not inscribed as at Nimrud, but those between the wings bowls at some of the entrances were carved with an elaborate and very elegant pattern. The doors were probably of wood, gilt and adorned with precious materials, like the gates of the Temple of Jerusalem, and they appear to have turned in stone sockets, for amongst the ruins were found many black stones hollowed in the center, and bearing an inscription in these words, Sennacherib, the great king, king of Assyria, brought this stone from the distant mountains, and used it for the sockets of the pillars of the doors of his palace. To ward off the glare of an eastern sun, hangings or curtains of gay colors and of rich materials were probably suspended to the pillars supporting the ceiling, or to wooden poles raised for the purpose, as in the palaces of Babylon and Shushan. Such hangings, as we have seen, appear to be described in the tablets of King Nebuchadnezzar. The frontispiece to this volume will enable the reader to understand how they were used. This engraving from a beautiful watercolor drawing, made by Mr. Baines under the superintendence of Mr. Ferguson, represents the eastern facade and the great entrance to the palace of Sennacherib, as they are supposed originally to have been. The lower part of the building actually exists and is drawn to scale. The upper part, of course, is mainly funded upon conjecture, but the preceding remarks may show that we are not altogether without materials to authorize some such restoration. The edifice represented in the bas-relief discovered at Koyanjik has furnished some of the architectural details. The battlements and finish to the walls is still seen at Koyanjik and Nimrud, and the various decorations introduced in other places are all taken from Assyrian monuments. The two poles with streamers in the foreground are from a bas-relief at Khorsabad. The sculptures at the sides of the steps are those from the descending passage at Koyanjik. The stone facing of the platform is that of the basement of the tower at Nimrud. The lions, Assyrian in character, are placed on the steps conjecturally, and the steps themselves are restored. The design upon the pavement is found on slabs at the entrances at Kayanjik. The excavations carried on at Nimrud during the last expedition have enabled me to restore 
to a certain extent, the several buildings on the platform, and to obtain some idea of their original appearance. On the artificial platform, built of regular layers of sun-dried bricks in some parts, and entirely of rubbish in others, but cased on all sides with solid stone masonry, stood at one time at least nine distinct buildings. Between each was a terrace, paved with stone, or with large kiln-burnt bricks, from one and a half to two feet square. At the northwestern corner rose the Great Tower, the tomb of the founder of the principal palace. Its basement was encased with massive masonry of stone, relieved by recesses and other architectural ornaments. The upper part, built of brick, was most probably painted, like the palaces of Babylon, with figures and mythic emblems. Its summit, I conjecture, to have consisted of several receding gradines, like the top of the black obelisk, and I would venture to crown it with an altar on which may have burnt the eternal fire. Adjourning this tower were two small temples dedicated to Assyrian gods. One actually abutted on it, although there was no communication whatever, as far as I could discover, between the interior of the two buildings. The other was about 100 feet to the east. They were both adorned with sculptures, and had evidently been more than one story high, and their beams and ceilings were of cedar wood. They contained statues of the gods, and the fullest records of the reign of the king their founder, engraved on immense monoliths. Between them was a way up to the platform from the north. Between the small temples in the northwest palace were two great flights of steps, or inclined ways, leading up from the margin of the river. Their sites are still marked by deep ravines. They opened upon a broad paved terrace. The Northwest Palace having been so fully described in my former work, I need only add that I have now been able to ascertain the position of its principal facade and entrance. It was to the north, facing the tower, and nearly resembled the grand approaches to Koyunjik and Korsabad. The two gateways formed by the sphinxes with the human form to the waist appear to have flanked a grand center portal to which they were united on both sides, as in Sennacherib's palace, by colossal figures of human-headed bulls and lions and winged priests. The remains of no other great entrance to the palace have yet been discovered, but I have little doubt from several indications in the ruins that there was a similar facade on the riverside, and that a terrace, ascended by broad flights of steps, overlooked the Tigris. To the south of the northwest palace was a third ascent to the summit of the platform, also marked by a ravine in the side of the mound. Beyond it were the upper chambers, built by the fourth king in succession from Sardanopolis, probably over the remains of an earlier edifice. Excavations made in different parts of the small mound covering the ruins show that they consisted of three distinct groups built round a solid central mass of sun-dried bricks. The great accumulation of earth above them proves that this building must have had more than one story. The upper chambers were separated from the palace of Esarhaddon, the most southern on the side of the platform, by a fourth grand approach to the terraces. Remains of great blocks of stone, of winged bulls, and of colossal figures in yellow limestone were found in the ravine. Esarhaddon's palace was raised some feet above the northwest and center edifices. It has been so entirely destroyed by fire, and by the removal of the slabs from its walls, that a complete ground plan of it cannot be restored. In the arrangement of its chambers, as far as we are able to judge from the ruins, it differed from other Assyrian buildings with which we are acquainted. The hall, above 220 feet long and 100 broad, opening at the northern end by a gateway of winged bulls on a terrace, 
which overlooked the grand approach and the principal palaces, and at the opposite end having a triple portal guarded by three pairs of colossal sphinxes, which commanded the open country and the tigris winding through the plain, must have been a truly magnificent feature in this palace. It occupied the corner of the platform, and an approach of which considerable remains still exist led up from the plain to its southern face. Around the grand hall appeared to have been built a number of small chambers, and this Assyrian building probably answers in its general plan, more than any other yet discovered, to the descriptions in the Bible of the Palace of Solomon, especially if we assume that the antechamber, divided into two parts, corresponds with the portico of the Jewish structures. The palace of Esarhaddon was considerably below the level of that of his grandson, and was separated from it what by appears from a very deep and wide ravine to have been the principal approach to the platform. The southeast edifice was very inferior, both in size of its apartments and in the materials employed in its construction, to the other royal buildings. It was probably built when the empire was fast falling to decay, and, as is usual in such cases, the arts seemed to have declined with the power of the people. Returning northwards, we come to the only traces of an approach on the eastern side of the platform, and consequently from the interior of the walled enclosure. It is remarkable that there should have been but one on this face, and it is even more curious that the only sides of the mound on which there are any remains of walls or fortifications are the eastern and northern, where the royal residences would have overlooked the city, supposing it to have been contained within the existing ramparts of earth. The edifices facing what would in that case have been the open country were left apparently defenseless. On the west side of the platform no actual ruins have been discovered, although there are undoubtedly traces of buildings in several places, and I think it not improbable that a temple or some similar edifice stood there. It only remains for me to mention the palace in the center of the platform, founded by the king whose name is believed to read Divanubar or Divanubra, but rebuilt almost entirely by Pool or Tiglath-Pileser. Excavations carried on during the second expedition brought to light the walls of a few additional chambers and numerous fragments of interesting sculptures. But the edifice was so utterly destroyed by Esarhaddon, who used the materials in the construction of his own dwelling place, that it is impossible to ascertain its general plan or even the arrangement of any of its rooms. The great inscribed bulls and the obelisk, we know to have been of the time of the older king, and the bas-reliefs of battles and sieges, heaped together as if ready for removal, to have belonged to the later. In the ramparts of earth, marking the enclosure wall of Nimrud to the north, fifty-eight towers can still be distinctly traced. To the east there were about fifty, but all traces of some of them are entirely gone. To the south the wall has almost disappeared, so that it could not have been of great size or thickness on that side. The level of the enclosure is here, however, considerably above the plain, and it is not improbable that the Tigris actually flowed beneath part of it, and that the remainder was defended by a wide and deep ditch, either supplied by the small stream still running near the ruins or by the river. At the southeastern corner of the enclosure, is a mound of considerable height and the remains of a square edifice. They may have been a fort or a castle. I searched in vain for traces of gates in the walls on the northern side. A high double mound, which probably marks the ruins of an entrance, was excavated, but no stone masonry or sculpted figures were discovered, 
as in a similar mound in the enclosure of Koyanjik. I conclude, therefore, that the gateways of the quarter of Nineveh, represented by Nimrud, were not, like those of the more northern divisions of the city, adorned with sculptures, but were built of the same materials as the walls, and were either arched or square, being formed, like the gates of modern Arab cities, by simple beams of wood. It is evident that the enclosure of Nimrud was regularly fortified and defended by walls built for the purpose of resisting an enemy and sustaining a prolonged siege. That of Khorsabad was precisely similar. There also the platform, on which the great palace stood, formed part of the walls, a fact for which I can scarcely offer any satisfactory explanation. It would seem more consistent with security that the dwelling of the king, the temples of the gods, and the edifices containing the archives and treasures of the kingdom should have been in the center of the fortifications equally protected on all sides. The palaces of Nimrud and Koyanjik, built on a platform, washed by a deep and broad river, were, to a certain extent, guarded from the approach of an enemy. But at Khorsabad, such was not the case. The royal residence overlooked the plain country and was accessible from it, unless the summit of the platform were strongly fortified on the western side, of which there is no trace. Of the fortified enclosures still existing, that surrounding Koyanjik is most remarkable and was best calculated to withstand the attack of a powerful and numerous army. I give a plan of the ruins from Mr. Rich's survey, which will enable the reader to understand the following description. Plan of the enclosure walls and ditches at Koyanjik. Its form, it will be perceived, was irregular. The side facing the river, including the mounds of Koyanjik and Nebi Yunus, A, and the northern or northwestern, B, are at right angles to each other in the nearly a straight line. From the eastern corner of the northern face, the inner wall, C, forms the segment of a circle towards the southern end of the western, the two being only 873 yards apart at their extremities, D. On the four sides are the remains of towers and curtains, and the walls appear to have consisted of a basement of stone and an upper structure of sun-dried bricks. The top of the stone masonry was ornamented with gradines, as at Nimrud. The western wall, A, was washed by the river and needed no other defense. A deep ditch, of which traces still exist, appears to have been dug beneath the northern, B. That to the south, D, was also protected by a dike and the tigris. The side most accessible to an enemy was that to the east, C, and it was accordingly fortified with extraordinary care and strength. The small river, Kauser, flows nearly in a direct line from the hills to the northeastern corner of the enclosure, makes a sweep to the south, at E, before reaching it, and after running for some distance beneath a perpendicular bank formed by conglomerate hills, G, parallel to the walls, but about three-quarters of a mile from then, again turns to the westward, at F, and enters the enclosure almost in the center. It then traverses this quarter of the city, winds around the base of Koyanjik, and falls into the Tigris. Nearly one half of the eastern wall was, consequently, provided with natural defenses. The Khauser served as a ditch, and the conglomerate ridge, slightly increased by artificial means, as a strong line of fortification. The remains of one or more ramparts of earth are still to be traced between the stream and the inner wall, but they could not have been of very considerable size. The northeastern extremity of these outer defenses appears to have joined the ditch which it was carried along the northern face of the enclosure, thus completing the fortification in this part. 
below or to the south of the entry of the Kauser into the enclosure, the inner wall was defended by a complete system of outworks. In the first place, a deep ditch, about 150 feet wide, was cut immediately beneath it and was divided for half its length into two separate parts, between which was a rampart. A parallel wall, H, was then carried from the banks of the Kauser to the dike on the southern side of the enclosure. A second ditch, about 108 feet wide, and of considerable depth, probably supplied by the Kauser, extended from the point at which that stream turns to the westward as far as the southern line of defenses. A third wall, I, the remains of which are above 100 feet high on the inner face, abutted to the north on the ridge of conglomerate hills, G, and completed the outer defenses. A few mounds rising in the level country beyond, the principal of which, near the southern extremity of the lines, is called Tel-Azembel, the Mound of the Basket, appear to have been fortified outposts, probably detached towers, such as are represented in the bas-reliefs of Kleandric. An enemy coming from the east, the side on which the enclosure was most open to attack, had consequently first to force a stupendous wall strengthened by detached forts two deep ditches and two more walls the inner being scarcely inferior in size to the outer had then to be passed before the city could be taken the remains still existing of these fortifications almost confirmed the statements of diodorus siculus that the walls were a hundred feet high and that three chariots could drive upon them abreast and led to the conclusion that in describing the ramparts forming the circuit round the whole city ancient historians were confounding them with those which enclosed only a separate quarter or a royal residence as they have done in speaking of babylon whilst the inner walls were constructed of stone and brick masonry the outer appeared to have consisted of little else than of the earth loose pebbles and rubble dug out from the ditches which were cut with enormous labor into the solid conglomerate rock the walls and ditches around koyanjik were a favorite ride during my residence among the ruins the summit of the outer ramparts commands an extensive and beautiful prospect over all the great mounds the plains bounded by the several mountain ranges of kurdistan the windings of the river and the town of mosul Nue, that which god himself calleth the great city hath not one stone standing which may give memory of the being of a town one english mile from it is a place called mosul a small thing rather to be a witness of the other's mightiness and god's judgment than of any fashion of magnificence in itself such are the simple though impressive words of an old english traveller who probably looked down upon the site of nineveh from the same spot two centuries and a half ago beaten tracks from the neighbouring villages have for ages led and still lead through the ruins along them arabs and kurds with their camels and laden beasts may be seen slowly wending their way to the town but the space between the walls is deserted except by the timid gazelle and the jackals and hyenas which make their dens in the holes and caves in the sides of the mounds and in the rocky banks of the ancient ditches the spring called by the arabs tumlamaja as described by mr rich is a small pool of cool and refreshing water in a natural cavern the forepart of which is adorned with an arch cornice and stonework evidently of roman or greek construction upon the masonry are still to be traced the names of mrs rich and of the companions of the distinguished traveller chapter twenty six